Just Thrive Probiotic is the first and only 100% all-natural spore-form DNA verified and tested probiotic supplement. What is spore-form DNA? Well, spores are created by various bacteria to protect themselves against harsh environments. So the fact that Just Thrive uh, uses spore-form DNA and spore-form bacteria means that these bacteria are going to survive the stomach acid and go to your colon and your lower digestive system, where is where they're supposed to go, and help you out and increase their effectiveness. So I think it's a fantastic thing that they have spore-form bacteria as part of their probiotic. It's the subject of uh, groundbreaking clinical studies, and Just Thrive has demonstrated incomparable effects on the gut and undeniable connection to the immune system and brain. So Just Thrive, out of the goodness of their hearts, uh, they're offering my listeners 15% off site-wide. So if you go to justthrivehealth.com today, put in the code GENIUS15 to get advantage of uh, incredible savings and learn more. And I just got some in the mail as a thank you from Just Thrive, and I'm, I took my first two tonight, and I'm looking forward to seeing the effects. So again, go to justthrivehealth.com today. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1%. A real Jesus. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have a uh, whole group of people that I'm interviewing at once today. Three different people. I have Dr. Mike Lehman. He's a soil microbiologist uh, at USDA. I have uh, Dr. Kristen Viam. Uh, she's a research soil scientist. And I have Dr. Verona, Veronica Acosta-Martinez. She's a soil microbiologist and biochemist. So I hope that, uh, you know, with this many people, I'm able to ask good questions. And this won't be uh, too much of an explosion of ideas. But, it, you know, I'm game. It looks exciting. So thank you, everyone, for coming. I appreciate it. Mike, would you start with your bio first, and then I'm going to ask Kristen and then Veronica. So, Mike, uh, tell me a bit about your background and, and then your current work at USDA. What's it involved? So, I'm a research microbiologist, study bacteria that live in the soil, and particularly we're interested in bacteria in soils that um, are involved in agricultural production of food. So, in our location, we look at cropping systems. And we are, in my lab, we're looking at soil microorganisms and uh, what they're doing and how, what we can learn from them and how we can manage them in some way to reduce inputs and produce as much crop, produce as much profit for the farmers. Uh, so there's a lot of basic research in the lab that's involved in being a soil microbiologist. And um, so we do a lot of that, and there's a lot of learning to be done, and we do a whole lot of that. That's great. Kristen, could you uh, just give a brief bio of yourself, and what, what are you working on? Sure. So I'm a research soil scientist, and I'm in Columbia, Missouri. And if I had to boil my work down to one or two sentences, I, I guess I would say my goal is to try to simultaneously optimize agricultural production, but at the same time, optimize environmental protection. So those are those are two things that are typically at odds with each other. So it's it's a challenge to try to to answer those those two objectives at, at once 
but but I'm an optimist, so that's what I try to do. Yeah, uh, that makes sense. Okay, and uh, Veronica, uh, how about yourself? Yeah, well, I'm a soil, micro, soil microbiologist and biochemist, Lubbock, Texas. It is southern High Plains region, and it's a semi-arid region. I started working here in about 2001. So it's about 20 years that I have been trying to evaluate the changes in the soil microbial component as affected by the, the complex interactions that we see with the climate variability that we have been seeing and the transitions in management that we also have experienced in this region. They, they can provide them just earlier indications of the changes in, in the soil health in many functions that soils can provide, like recycling of nutrients, organic matter, transformations, and, and in the productivity of this region. So I have seen then the evolution, the, the transitions from like uh, cotton production to the incorporation of other crops that could be more crop, uh, drought tolerant, like sorghum, the integration of livestock production for this region to save some water, as we're seeing reductions in the water available for irrigation, and we're seeing also more frequent droughts. So we are also then going more into pastures and forages and, and changes then in this type of, of management. It's important that we then can help producers to select then what are the best uh, integration of, of the management that they can do to, to cope with these changes that they are experiencing, reductions in the water, and, and that way keep our soils healthy and productive for future challenges that we will see, especially climate. Okay, yeah, uh, Kristen, uh, if you would, can we start with the project you're currently working on, and then uh, I'll ask questions based on it. Sure. One of the projects that interests me the most, that I have the most fun with, is uh, studying prairie reconstruction. So we're very focused on agriculture and how to minimize the degradation of the soil that comes from agriculture. And there's a lot of knowledge about what that trajectory of degradation looks like. But then, you know, how do we reverse that process, right? And so if we want to take degraded ag land and return it to a natural system like a native prairie, what does that trajectory look like? And what aspects of the soil function can we reclaim? And we have, well, right now I have a, a graduate student working on this prairie reconstruction project, and we have sampled uh, prairies all across the state, and we're looking at uh, just what's happened to the soil and how much of that um, function we can recover. And some of those results are pretty interesting. This may be a really elementary question, but what is a plain versus a prairie versus, you know, other names for, you know, an area of the environment? What is a prairie? What what makes a why would someone call an area of, let's say, grassland a prairie? What makes it a prairie? What does that mean? Well, I mean, you have tall grass prairies and short grass prairies, but um, it's really about the vegetation and other aspects of the ecosystem. So a prairie is going to be grasses and forbs. You're not going to have much in the way of, of woody plants. So here in Missouri, a lot of the former tall grass prairie that we used to have was prime agricultural land because it was fairly flat and it had high organic matter. So that's the land that was converted into agricultural production you know, many years ago. Now, maybe the others want to pipe in on different ecotypes that they have in their region. Yeah, I would say that's a great answer for prairies. And then I would just add that plains 
And my, my understanding is Prains is a particular region of the United States. You know, like if you go west out into Idaho and Nevada, it's called the Basin and Range. If you go east, you get the Mississippi River Valley and you get the Appalachians. But but here in the extending all the way from Canada down to Texas, Texas, that portion of the United States is known as the Plains, Plains region, Northern Plains, Southern Plains. Okay, yeah, I just wonder if it's just another word, you know, is a plain different from a prairie, from a, uh, you know, from something else, but okay. You know, they are. Um, prairie could, is more about the vegetation, and plains is, is more about the geography within uh, the United States. So, uh, yeah, Kristen, you said there's been a degradation of the, I guess, the soil. What is that only in places where crops have been actively planted? Is it because they haven't been rotated? Like, why has there been a degradation? Well, I mean, you can end up with soil degradation for a lot of different reasons. If we're going to focus just on on agriculture in in this region, you know, for many years we plowed the soil, right? So when you're disturbing the soil heavily with with tillage, that you know turns the soil over, breaks apart the aggregates, it causes oxidation of that organic matter, that carbon that's in the soil, and you know, when, when that happens, then it's more susceptible to wind and water erosion. And then once you lose all that organic matter, there's just a, a whole sort of spiral of other things that, that happen. So the microbial community declines and the nutrient cycling declines. So a lot of things can come from that. And so on the agricultural side, things like keeping the soil covered with residues or increasing the rotational diversity, so the crop diversity, including cover crops in your rotation, and, you know, just overall reducing disturbance um, can improve that degradation process and hopefully reverse that or mitigate that. Is there still a ton of monoculture going on? I would guess there is, and is that a big reason for the degradation? Or, you know, within agriculture only, what are the major drivers of it? How can you do agriculture right versus wrong? To give your body the important immune support it needs so you can feel your absolute best, get your gut in order with Just Thrive Probiotic. Uh, Very nice of them. They're offering 15% off for listeners all across their website. So go to justthrivehealth.com and put in the code GENIUS15. You can take advantage of incredible savings and learn more about their products. Well, I mean, so that's what we're we're all trying to study is, is how can you do it right? And what can we do to improve what we're already doing or what we've been doing for a long time. And so a lot of those principles that I just sort of tossed out there, you know, reducing tillage. So maybe a no-till system, if you are growing row crops, if you're not growing row crops, you can look at perennial systems, right? So a, a pasture system, for example, or some type of perennial crop is, is going to have roots in the soil and it's going to protect the soil and reduce erosion. So, all of those those principles. What so guys, what do we say those principles are? Again, it's reduced disturbance, which can be tillage. It's living roots, so that can be either cover crops or having perennial crops. Keeping that soil covered, which can be having crop residues left behind or including cover crops when you would otherwise be fallow. And then bumping up that diversity. So having different uh, extended crop rotations or strip cropping, or intercropping, alley cropping, anything that increases crop diversity, or you can even add in livestock. And they call those integrated livestock systems. And so you've added an animal component. 
Veronica, what project are you working on right now? Well, I, I want to just to emphasize how, how good it is to have these interactions of all of us, the three of us, because there are different regions that cover different type of crops, soils, climate challenges uh, in management selections in my region. As, as we're having this fast transition to dry land, as the water supply from the irrigation from the overall aquifer is diminishing, we're having all these frequent droughts, as I was explaining. One of the things that have been interesting in my research is that sometimes you have to innovate and, and think about what are these things that are just you know, coming up that, that you need to, to understand that, like, for example, these frequent uh, droughts, cycles like this, I then decided to then keep taking soil samples every year, as often also as possible, within all these producer fields and the research plots that we also have, and, and being able that way, we we could then see trends on how microbes are impacted, are they, they, they crash, they are reduced by these frequent droughts on these cycles of, of low precipitation and heat waves that we are experiencing. But it's also very interesting then to see how they experience a fast recovery, that that resilience that we see is of ecological significance to see that they can recover from this. So I also found that during these extreme conditions and these routes, it was still possible to distinguish when when producers have some management history of, of another crop that is possible to rotate with cotton, either sorghum or, or wheat. And, and that way you could still we could still then detect greater microbial communities in those soils compared to soils that were under more monoculture and continuous cotton. So these things have been very interesting to see how it's important, the management, how the management matters, how we can leave some fingerprints there, some benefits that can be helpful for uh, future events like this. So those are kind of like the projects that I could say that, that we have focused in here, evaluating alternative management for this region that could keep this source healthy, but also how the management surprised on how we're really having this more frequent droughts and, and climatic variability. That was predicted. Who is the management up to? Is it up to the landowner? Or is there also a local or state or federal set of regulations that governs you know, what a given uh, owner of land can do? Well, like cotton production, this region, despite challenges that we could have on, on the extreme conditions of heat, uh, low precipitation received, high wind, <laughs> erosion that is experienced, this region has sent even actually the, the temperature needed and the conditions needed for cotton production. So we are an important region for cotton production in the, in the nation. And so we're one of the major cotton producing regions of the United States. And, and that will be then the main crop that is then produced. And, and it will depend then also maybe on the price and, and things like that. If they experience hail, then they go for sorghum, they try other crops, they're trying also to diversify. But this is up to the producer and to the, if they have water, if they are able to irrigate, if they have to manage water, they may do other things. They may rotate. They may try to do more livestock integration, some of the producers, to also cope with the water needed. But all were also important for livestock production in the nation and for sorghum production. I'll add that it's really, it, that's kind of an interesting question too, when you think about who's making those decisions on the landscape and I think there may be some stage where they do have 
rules that govern that, um, I, not, not here that I'm aware of, but you have the, the land owner may not be the one that's producing the crops. And we have a lot of leased land, we have a lot of, you know, rental land. So the owner of the land could put something related to management practices in that, in that contract. And they could potentially require that the person renting their land uses no-till, for example. I, I don't think that's very commonly done, but it, it, it is an option. But if somebody doesn't live there on the farm, and if they don't have plans for it to be you know, a family legacy, so to speak, then they may not be too concerned about what the renter is doing. Yeah, okay. Everyone seems to have mentioned tillage as a problem. I mean, you would need to prepare the field before you plant. And then when the field's done, I guess you'd, again, till the field. How long does it take? I know it depends, but how long does it take for a soil to recover? And why is disturbing it? Why is tillage so bad? Maybe all of you can weigh in. Mike, do you want to go first? Well, I can go first. So just to clarify, we try and avoid the terms bad and good. And... um you know, a lot of practices that are being performed today have, have the roots for hundreds of years uh, or at least decades in certain parts of the country. And so that's important to, to consider in, in terms of the bigger picture. There is a fair amount of research that shows that disturbance of the soil disturbs the structure of the soil. And by disturbing the structure of the soil, you change the way air moves in the soil. You change the way water moves in the soil. Consequently, you also disrupt the soil microbial communities and their partnerships with the plants that are going to grow there. That said, there are probably locations uh, in the United States or on someone's farm where unless they till, they may not be able to grow anything. So there's, it's not a one-size-fits-all where it's possible to use no-till practices, um, it's been demonstrated by producers to be profitable, to be productive, and to, to basically save them money on inputs. There is, I'm sure there'd be plenty of people who would like to argue those points. I'm just speaking from what is found in the research and, and what I know in our region. Uh, our region we're kind of on the edge of, of where no-till takes place. And if you go any farther east of us, then there's uh, less no-till because the soils are moist. But even there, there's producers that use no-till and are very successful. So a couple couple things that are important is I think no-till does require a different way to handle weeds. And so there, there's no there's no magic practice like everyone's got to be no-till or bust, or everybody's got to be organic or bust. There's a combination of practices that could be used to increase the health of the soil uh, while retaining reproductive crops and uh, good soils and good water and good air. And so it's important that we find this uh, particular combination and, and provide demonstration of producers that can achieve these goals to improve everything across the board, but we can't say, hey, we got to apply no-till to everything. Uh, it does have benefits. It does have drawbacks. In some cases, no-till farmers tend to use more herbicide because they have to control uh, plants without cultivation. Question here. Um, so when, when someone plants a crop in a field, if it's monoculture, I would think all the microbes and the fungi and everything would 
you know, either survive or not with that one crop. But I would think that the um, the field would become it would lose a lot of diversity, you know, especially over a whole season. You just have corn, let's say, you know, one particular type of corn. Then when the season's over, I mean, I know this is not exactly tillage, but if you're going to switch to another crop, um, would the field be in such bad shape from having only one crop that another one just couldn't grow there without substantial help? Like, how do you get a field mm. after harvest back into shape to have a crop on it, even if it's the same crop or different? Well, that's a question that's really at the heart of the science and research that we're doing at our locations and my colleagues probably are doing at their locations as well. You know, how? what's the legacy effect? But before I move on to that, I wanted to answer a couple questions about no-till. In research plots, people commonly think it takes about five years for the benefits of no-till to begin and the crops to be producing equally to tilled area. Five years is often the amount. There was a recent study published by um, a group in Michigan, Michigan State, that showed that it took about 15 years, actually, following conversion of no-till to make up all the uh, uh, profit that would have um, otherwise gone into their their coffers if they had stayed with tillage. So going going from till to no-till often requires a big sacrifice of time and maybe less profits. But then once you hit that point, the tipping point, and then you start accruing a ton of savings. Um, and so it is, it is something, it's all long-term. If you, if you want to commit to one of these managements or a selection of management, long-term is the way to recoup any loss that you might have with yield. And I think that's really an important point. So I don't know if you want me to keep talking about the other thing, but. um, Well, and before you do, you know, just to to follow up on that, you know, switching to no-till is not just as simple as buying a new piece of equipment and suddenly now you're a no-tiller. You know, any change to your management system affects just about every other decision that that producer has to make throughout that season and how they handle everything when they plant, when they harvest, how they handle weed control. So, you know, one of the things we try to do as scientists is try out different things to try to help them solve all of the the downstream decision-making, you know, questions and and hurdles that are going to come up if they're going to make that switch. And sometimes they need to plant a different crop variety or something along those lines. So it's, it's not a simple switch but back to you mike no i think that's a really good point none of it's simple and there's no one size prescription even in one of our locations because even at our location our surrounding producers each one has may have a field with different conditions than the other one yeah legacy effects and that's um that's exactly what at least i i study that's probably the major source of our research work right now is looking at the legacy effects and we're in eastern South Dakota, okay? So that's in the Plains area. Uh, it formerly was a mixed prairie, mixed grass prairie, you know, tall and short grass prairie. They call it mixed grass, I think. And now it's a lot of corn and soybean. And uh, you see corn and then you see soybean. And occasionally you see some small grains. So it's not a monoculture, but nearly every farm out here probably has corn soybean rotation somewhere. And I'm guessing that's true in Missouri as well. And many points in between. 
And two crops is kind of a minimalistic rotation. And what farmers have long known for decades, decades, well before we showed up, is that um, crop rotation has a lot of benefits and uh, preceding crop may benefit the succeeding crop. And where, where things changed was with the availability of, of uh, fertilizers, you know, mechanization and so on. And the market, markets now, you know, farmers are going to respond to the markets. That's the first thing that's going to determine what crops are growing. And so we've lost a lot of the diversity in the crop rotations. And so what we are working on our research farm is we were looking at three, four-year rotations that include small grains in addition to corn and soybean, as well as a few other crops like sunflower or peas. And what we're finding is that the crop diversity makes a change in the soil microbial community. Um, That's one thing, how much diversity you have, but it's also important what the preceding crop is. And so we're looking at corn and soybean and the effects of preceding crop on corn and soybean production. And we find not only is the soil microbial communities changed in the root zone of these plants, but also if you have, let's say you have small grains in the rotation, then you tend to have higher corn yields and higher soybean yields. And this is due to having more crops in the rotation and they are affecting the soil microbes and the soil microbes are providing benefits to the crops that are being grown there. And, and part of it, we think, is, is a pathogen issue, whereas if you have just corn and soybean every year, corn, soybean, corn, soybean, then you have a buildup in pathogens specific for corn or soybean. But if you break that with small grains or some other crops, then you're able to uh, reduce the density of soil-borne pathogens. I think it's a really exciting field. You know, these crop rotation effects have been known, you know, since the turn of the century. But what hasn't been known is what the mechanisms are. And what we're starting to uncover is that the soil microbes might be the mechanisms behind these crop rotation effects. And and so that's what I'm studying, and that's what I'm very excited about. I mean, Mike, so we've gone through a little bit of your projects, Veronica, but yours, Kristen, yours. What do you all think are some of the most important issues today, you know, in 2021 with, uh, you know, understanding soil and crops and maximizing agriculture. I mean, has agriculture gone far enough where it's pretty well maximized and there's not much room to improve? Or is there still a huge amount of improvement to be had? And what is it? Just wanted to double check. I I just wanted to mention that as, as we are focusing here, that our research depends on the region and sometimes the specific challenges. In this region, for example, we have more water challenges. And when you mention about specific uh, conservation programs, we have some that are related to water. Like then with the NRCS, we have a program that is equipped EQIP, Environmental Quality Incentive Program from NRCS. It's our sister agency, the National Resource Conservation Service, in which producers sometimes are helped and assisted to change from center pivot uh, irrigation system to subsurface drip irrigation and that way it's, it's a system that plays then uh, and adds the water below ground and can save water and, and reduce the evaporation so that's another example of some of the programs that sometimes could be more specific for for some regions and it's one of the programs that we 
have seen more recently being used here by producers. So I think that within the research across regions in ARS, we have been able to help and assist producers with their specific challenges. And I see more and more than improvements in uh, agriculture regionally also with all the scientists distributed across the nation for improving the soil and crop productivity. It's one of our uh, missions to be able then as a network to help improve the, the nation. I guess that one of the most important things here is how also the climate variability as we represent also different changes and climate shifts and cropping systems shift across the nation. I think that we have success stories to really tell on how we have been able to design cropping systems that are more suitable for every region to provide crop varieties that are more tolerant to climate variability, to heat and the drought stresses. And in that way, then we have been able to provide not only that, but also techno uh, technologies uh, for water, also more use efficiency, and methodology also for, for metrics, for soil health indicators. And I think Kristen is also a uh, person that has done a lot of research on methodology, validation of methods for soil health assessments, if you want to add. Oh, sure. Well, so I think you were asking about sort of where we stand and if there's still room for improvement. And I would say we have a lot of really progressive farmers out there that are sort of leading the leading the charge. And in, in many ways, they educate us about how things can be done and what can be accomplished um, in agriculture. But but there are still, you know, there's still quite a bit of room for improvement in terms of a lot of acres that are still under tillage and um, perhaps, you know, adding in cover crops and, and integrating some of these multiple soil health principles. And as we improve these systems, like Veronica mentioned climate, we're going to have to be very agile and responsive in the future as, as climate variability continues to become a problem. So if we solve a, solve a problem in one location, we may have to, to uh, find a new solution to a new problem in that same area in the future. So we're going to have to stay on our toes and, and keep doing our research so that we can continue to have productive agricultural systems. So I, I think that's a, one of the big challenges moving forward. And then in order you know, to do that and do that research really well, climate data is very high density, very intensive data. And so with all of these new types of data coming at us, we need new techniques to handle that data and to interpret that data. And a lot of that, you know, there's a focus on artificial intelligence and machine learning techniques, but, you know, just figuring out how to unravel the complexity of, of these questions and being able to, to solve these problems now, but also in the future. All right, Mike, go ahead. I think there's improvements to be made in terms of adoption of, let's say, the best set of practices that could be adopted given the, the system and the equipment and the soil type and the climactic region that a farmer has, if we were to say, we'll take all that site-specific information, and if you could use these management things to make, you know, work on your system and maybe improve it, you know, if we could do that for the 95% of farmers that probably haven't adopted everything, yeah, I mean, it'd be huge, right? It'd be huge. And so right now, you have you have a very small percentage of farmers that are probably using all the 
practices that are available to reduce inputs and take care of the soil and the water and the air. And it's not that they don't want to or they're against it. It's just, you know, it's human nature, right? You know, and, and in fact, you know, it's a lot of work. I mean, the, the people that are adopting a lot of these practices, they're workaholics. Almost everyone I've met always seems to be always working. And um, and so, it, you know, there's a barrier there. And, and hopefully some of these barriers can be overcome. And our role here is to demonstrate it can be done. And part of what we need to do is have long-term experimental research field plots where we can demonstrate these things over a period of decade or two decades. So in this case with the crop rotation, we're looking at a two-decade experiment. It's 20 years. And with the report on uh, no-till I was telling you about, they did a they did a big analysis and the benefits of no-till really didn't start appearing until about 15 years after they converted. But then, and that was environmental benefits, profitability benefits, yield benefits. But after that, then they just snowball. They compound like interest in the bank used to. Yeah, I believe there's a lot of room for improvement. Maybe, you know, it'll be a, a small percent per farm. But if you multiply that by the number of farms and the number of acres, you're talking about an astounding increase in efficiencies and, and less impacts on soil, water, and air as we produce our food. Well, very good. I don't want to keep all you guys too long, but, uh, you know, Michael, Veronica, and Kristen, thank you for coming. Um, what's the best way for folks that are interested? Because there's a ton more here. Where can they follow up? How can they follow up? Oh, is, is it, you, you know, is USDA website the best? Or, you know, if someone's yeah. interested in soil and all the issues surrounding, again, tillage, soil, agriculture, et cetera, what's, what's your suggestion for how they can learn more? Well, Go to a USDA website or where should they go? Yeah, there's the USDA website, ARS websites, but but also Veronica, would you like to tell them about the uh, story map? We also recently developed what is called a story map for a soil biology group network that we have in ARS that we, the three of us, represent. And we have in this story map a highlight of 26 of our soil scientists that are a, also mainly also soil biologists, but we have so many other scientists in, in, in the nation, just to always mention that. But it's focusing on the research that we do, how we, in our mission, is uh, focusing on understanding the below-ground connections that drive soil health, harness soil biology, and support sustainable uh, production for the nation for the food, fiber, and fuel needed. So in that case, then if you search for soil biology ARS, I think it could it should come up, and we're also going to use it for our presentations, and we'll have it easily accessible in ARS. We provide a wide array, and that way of local regional expertise. We represent a set of data collection from so many years in ARS uh, techniques, research to enhance soil health. So we're committed to the uh, producers in the challenges they have been facing today and for the challenges that, that we expect that are coming. Well, very good. Well, all of you, thank you for coming on the podcast, and I appreciate it. Okay, thank, thank you, you, Richard. Remember, before you go, the easiest thing you can do to support your immune system and your gut health is to check out Just Thrive Probiotic. Go to their website, justthrivehealth.com, and use the promo code GENIUS15 at checkout. You get 15% off. Thank you, Just Thrive. 
You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.